called our little break halftime. It is kind of a halftime, kind of nice to have a little bit of a halftime and catch up a little bit with everybody. And to come back from that halftime to be before the Lord and His Word. When we go through the scriptures, it's not simply teaching, not simply explaining history or literature. Uh, It is being before the Lord Himself. It's His Word. His Word endures forever. He speaks through His Word. He imparts life through His Word. This is His chosen means to, to touch lives, to build His church, to gather people, to call people, and to build them up and to empower them and send them out. He's at work. When we gather in His name, He's at work when His Word is proclaimed. Uh, and so it's a privilege to be able to be before His Word. We are going to uh, continue in our series in Mark, our series called Amazed. And um, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed this series, uh, at least going through and studying Mark more in depth. And I've really enjoyed kind of the flow of the past uh, couple weeks to watch after this time of Jesus' teaching. He uh, goes forth and, and goes out on the lake, crosses the lake, and there's just powerful miracles that happen. And really, one after another, he demonstrates his lordship over things that would otherwise perhaps ruin our lives, at least loom large over our lives and consume us. And in these chapters here, 4 and 5, he really demonstrates that he is Lord. He's greater than all these things. So we see him as Lord over nature, Lord over spiritual darkness. This week we'll see him as Lord over sickness and death. He demonstrates who he is. And he does this for his disciples there at the time, but he also does it for you right here today. Because in God's sovereignty, he's preserved these accounts of what happened, and he has orchestrated how they've been recorded, what sort of uh, literary means that were, were used to put them down. All those things are arranged by God so that you too would see who he is, and you too would be amazed. You would see that he is Lord over these calamities of disasters and demons and disease and death that can loom over our lives as ominous forces threatening to consume us. We see in these chapters that Jesus truly is true help for the hopeless. That's who we see. We see Jesus, Lord of all, true help for the hopeless. So let's pray and ask that we might see him as he really is. Lord, we ask you now as we look at your word, would you show us who you are? You are Lord over disasters and demons and disease and death and all things. You've demonstrated that here in the scriptures. You've demonstrated that through your death and resurrection. And you are making that known even today through your word and the power of the Holy Spirit. So come and do that, Lord, we pray. Show us your glory. Draw us to yourself. Magnify your name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's look at chapter 5, verses 21 to the end. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him, earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, 
so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. God's word from Mark chapter 5. That's right. Hallelujah for his glorious power in these two people's lives. This is uh, in the flow of, of the story here. Jesus has crossed the lake. He was on the east side of the lake. Do you remember where we left off? He had done a great miracle in deliver, delivering this guy who was demonized by thousands of demons from his affliction. And as David read, uh, that he want, this guy wanted to come with them. He was begging to go in the boat, and then the crowd, the people on the other side, were begging Jesus to leave. Please leave. We don't want you. We'd rather our swine and, and, and all this uh, that goes with it than you. Jesus gets in the boat, goes to the other side, and fairly immediately encounters really a contrast. On this side of the lake, on now the west side of the lake, he gets out of the boat, there's a crowd there. It's Jesus. They throng to him. And now there's a man, a, an important official. He's a, one of the synagogue rulers. And the synagogue was like a local church. 
And so he was like a pastor, but in the community at the time, the, the synagogue functioned more than just as a, as a house or a place of worship or a gathering of worshipers. It also had uh, judicious functions and so forth. So it kind of was like a city councilman and a pastor together. This is an important official. And this guy comes up and really basically embarrasses himself, potentially, in front of everybody. He falls at Jesus' feet and begs him not to leave, but to come. Come to my house. My daughter is on the brink of death. It was very dangerous for Jairus to do what he did. If you remember, as we've gone through, we, we learned that, that the officials from Jerusalem had already come and declared that Jesus was a demonically inspired deviant. So the official declaration is this guy is not of God, he's of the devil. So anyone who associates with him is in trouble. So this was a dangerous thing for Jairus to do. He's an important official. He has a lot to lose. But his priorities have been seriously adjusted through this crisis. Crises like these have a way of clarifying priorities. His 12-year-old baby girl is on the verge of death. And all of a sudden, all those things that were important to him, like possessions and prestige or positions of power, just did not matter a whole lot. What mattered was that his baby girl was going to die unless something happened. He didn't really care about himself at this point. He cared about his daughter. He was desperate and willing to fall at Jesus' feet. And you know, Jairus is really like a lot of people. Like a lot of people perhaps you know. Maybe family members, maybe people in the workplace, maybe people in your neighborhood. They're like Jairus. They are probably more interested in possessions and prestige and positions of power and other things. And they're just kind of going along their way. And they're not at, that, at all or not much interested in Jesus. They're certainly not ready to fall at his feet and beg him to help them. But like Jairus, and really for all of us, there will come a moment or moments in their life where all of a sudden there will be a crisis or crises that will press themselves and adjust their priorities. And get them to think about what really matters. Jairus is a lot like a lot of people. And let me tell you, uh, King of Grace, you guys are oh so important for the Jairuses in your lives. And do not be discouraged by their indifference at this point. Right now, they just might not want to hear much about this Jesus that you've talked about. But keep on talking in a, in a respectful, gentle way, but talk. Keep on loving. Keep on being a true friend. Keep on being available and helpful. Because as you do that, you will witness to the life of Christ through your actions and your words. They will hear the good news. They will see a life that's been changed by the good news. And you will serve as a point of reference when the crises come. Who do they ask to pray when things are tough? They'll ask you to pray. And as those crises come and we're there to love them, it just might be, and it so often is, that they will have a change of heart and be ready to fall at Jesus' feet and beg him to help. So God, let us keep in mind that many, there are many Jairuses out there and God will use the time and he will use us. So Jairus had reached his breaking point and he was desperate to go to this rabbi from Nazareth, this prophet. And Jesus responds by going with him. 
He goes with him and there's this great crowd thronging about them and, and, and everyone's eager to see what will happen. What will happen? Jesus is going to heal somebody. What will go on? Everyone's there. But then the, the storyline gets interrupted. The flow of the story gets interrupted by another desperate person. So we're, we meet Jairus, this desperate person, this desperate father, and now we meet another desperate person in the story. It's a woman who's been sick for 12 years. She spent her life savings on doctors, and these doctors could do nothing but just watch her decline. And her sickness, this discharge of blood, was not just any sickness. Certainly, we hard enough to deal with the sickness, but it was a sickness that would have made her ceremonially unclean. Now, we don't have anything like that here in our culture, but for the Jews, if you had an issue of blood, you were unclean. You could not, you, you could not go to the temple. You could not worship. You could not be around other people, because if if you were, they would become ceremonially unclean too. You couldn't go to the synagogue. And so her disease was not just a physical disease, but it was a social, it had social implications in the disease as well. I'm sure it changed her life. All her family and friends that she probably would spend lots of time with, she could not get the same amount of time. Those public settings that were so important for a Jewish person she couldn't participate in. She couldn't go to the synagogue and worship. She couldn't go for the, the, the different annual feasts that they would have at the temple. Very important in the life of the Jewish people to go to the temple and to worship and be together and to pray. She could not go in and worship. She was isolated. She was alone. She was desperate. There are a lot of people like this woman as well. They may not have, we not, do not have ceremonial laws like they did. But there are people that are isolated through their sicknesses. There are shut-ins out there. There are people who can't get out. As I thought about it, I just thought of all the people in nursing homes in Haverhill. Hundreds, probably thousands in nursing homes in our area. Uh, and I'm so grateful for those that already go to nursing homes and minister. And that is just such a wonderful, worthy ministry. There are people who, who their lives are changed because of sickness and they're isolated there and they're ready for a friend to come in. They're ready for young people to come in and bring a little light. And they're ready to hear about the good news if they haven't already. We have opportunity to minister to women like this through things like our nursing home ministries that go on either personally or, or even officially. I'd love for us to do more. This woman needed help. She was isolated and she is desperate. And she comes to Jesus. And she interrupts the story. And what happens as a result is Jairus becomes even more desperate. Because in the meantime, as Jesus is ministering to this woman, as he's bringing healing to her, he delays. And then word comes from Jairus' friends. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. Can you imagine what it would have felt like to be Jairus at that moment? You've already gone and you've been so desperate. You have gone and you've, you've laid down everything, your reputation, your position, everything for your daughter. And you've pleaded, please, come and heal her. I know you can heal. I've seen you do it. And now the, the news comes. Well, she's dead. And I'm sure at that moment, Jairus was crushed just simply overwhelmed with grief, perplexed. But the Savior is there. The Savior comes and intervenes. 
But he is desperate at that moment. This woman is desperate in her sickness. They are desperate for help. These things, disease and death, have overwhelmed them. They are defining their lives. And Jesus comes here to to help the desperate. Jesus comes in the story. And Jesus comes in reality today as true help for the hopeless. They are virtually hopeless at this point. Jesus comes as true help. And the drama of the story is by God's design to emphasize the fact that Jesus comes when, when we feel we're in the very darkest hour and intervenes as we look to him. He comes here and intervenes and brings help to the hopeless. The message here is clear. It's simple. Jesus brings true help to the hopeless. Put your faith in him. That's a simple message here in this section of Scripture. Put your faith. King of Grace Church, put your faith. Visitor to King of Grace. Friend, put your faith in Jesus who is true help for the hopeless. And certainly these are two hopeless cases. Jesus comes. He comes and he brings hope. He brings help to disease, the ravages of disease and death. He shows his lordship here. He does it in power. He does it dramatically, but he does it his way, not our way. He does it his way, not necessarily Jairus' way. He does it on his terms. His terms involve his timing and his way, which is faith. He does it through faith. He does it in his timing. Do you notice the timing in this story? It's about timing, isn't it? This woman has been sick for how many years? Twelve years. She's been sick for twelve years. She's spent all her money. She's been desperate. She's been pressed to the point of utter desperation. And then God heals her. Now, did that happen because... God just didn't know about the situation until 12 years later? Oh, oh, that's right. This woman, been sick. I forgot. Let's get some help to her. Or maybe he just had like a moratorium on healings. Like, okay, we just, we need a break from healing for 12 years just so that, you know, we can, we can take a rest. The angels are kind of tired. We're going to take a break. Is that what happened? No, God, God is in control of time. He's always the same. He doesn't change. But he waits 12 years. Why? Why do you wait 12 years? That's a long time. That's a long time to struggle with a life-defining illness. She's been pressed to the point of desperation over 12 years. And God waited. He was the same God 12 years before that and all over the 12 years. But he waited to this moment. Speaking of waiting, what about poor Jairus? For him, it was probably 12 minutes. Lord, why did you wait 12 minutes? I mean, you heard my plea. My daughter is on the brink of death. She's about to die. This is an emergency. And if someone came to you and said, so-and-so is about to die, would you, and you had the means to help, would you, would you just kind of take a walk with the crowd and then someone interrupts you, you'd stop and address them? I mean, you know, if, you, if you're sick at home and something's happening very serious and you call the ambulance and the ambulance, like, come drive, you find out that the ambulance, like, drove slowly, they didn't use their lights. As a matter of fact, they stopped into Starbucks on the way to get a little coffee and then came to your house and finally got you. Would you be like, what are you guys doing? It's an emergency. What's the delay? 
For the woman, it was 12 years. For Jairus, the delay is 12 minutes, and it makes all the difference. What's going on? The Lord of time has chosen to delay. Why? Well, God messes with our world by doing things in His own time, not ours, on purpose. And there are perhaps multiple reasons for this, but one important, perhaps most important reason is this, that God uses waiting to work something that's worth waiting for. God uses waiting to work something that's worth waiting for. He uses waiting to work something that's worth waiting for. He has purpose in waiting. He's doing something that's worthwhile. If you have struggled with sickness, you have struggled with difficulties that you've prayed for, the wait is not God being deaf or not caring. It's God's purpose. He has something for you worth waiting for. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. I think we have this quote to put up about this. If the Lord Jehovah makes us wait, let us do so with our whole hearts. For blessed are all they that wait for him. He is worth waiting for. The waiting itself is beneficial to us. It tries faith, exercises patience, trains submission, and endears the blessing when it comes. The Lord's people have always been a waiting people. Waiting on God tries our faith. It, it presses us to continue to believe even when, when, it's, when it's difficult to believe. It presses our faith to, to grow richer and longer and turn into something that's, that's life-defining and makes us like Jesus. It's called hope. Faith over the long haul is called hope. God uses the waiting to build hope into us. He strengthens our faith to wait, to endure to hang on, to trust Him. He, he tests our faith. He, he grows our faith through waiting. Waiting teaches us patience. And you can keep that quote up because uh, I'm going off of what Pastor Charles Spurgeon says. Waiting teaches us patience. It teaches us to forego immediate gratification. We are people who want what we want now. I don't want to wait. I want it now. I want healing immediately. I want your answer immediately. And if we were given what we want on our timetable, we would be in very real danger of, of forgetting God, living for those things, and taking His grace for granted. We would turn from Him. I know I would. If I got what I wanted, when I wanted, I would just start to take it for granted. And I would start to make the answer my God, not God Himself. God wants your heart. He wants you to want to give your heart to Him more than you want the answer to that prayer that you're waiting for. It teaches us to forego immediate gratification, to put off the desires, even the natural appetites and desires, fleshly desires that we might have that would define our life otherwise. Waiting is so good. Waiting is good discipline for our souls. It trains us in submission to remember that He's God, we're not. He has the prerogative and the wisdom and in all His glory, He knows exactly the best timing. And so waiting teaches us, I'm not God. I can't make it happen. Only He is. It trains us. Teaches us submission. Teaches us to turn to Him. 
And finally, it enhances the blessing when it comes. When we have to wait for something, the thing starts to become more precious to us. I, I know for me, we're, the, the time that food tastes the very best is when I've gone without food for a while. We as a church do fasts and, and, uh, and uh, hey, I might lose my reward on this one, but last fast, uh, we fasted for three days. That was one of the longest I've ever done. And when I was done, the food we had was incredible. It was the best food I ever had in my whole life. And it probably wasn't any different. It could have been peanut butter and jelly, but it was just like, oh, this is so good. Um, and, and that's part of what God does. When we wait, we realize this is so good. His answer is so good. We value what's important. So let us learn to wait. Let us see in this storyline the waiting. We do see his lordship, and we're called to faith in him, but we must understand that putting our faith in him is, does not mean immediate gratification. It means gratification and answer and the reward indeed, but in his time and in his way. A.W. Tozer, the writer and pastor of the last century said, what then are we to do about our problems? We must learn to live with them until such time as God delivers us from them. We must pray for grace to endure them without murmuring. Problems patiently endured will work out for our spiritual perfecting. They harm us only when we resist them or endure them unwillingly. So let us wait on God's time. So as Jesus brings healing, he does it in his timing, and he does it through faith. That's the other thing that's important for us to understand, his way of working through faith. And this story is a representation of faith in the two people, Jairus and the woman. And just, you probably noted that their faith was not incredible, strong faith. It was weak and wavering faith. It was timid faith. It was faith that was barely there. That's on purpose. That's reality. That's instructive for us because sometimes we think God wants me to do it by faith, so I have to be a hero. I have to just have 100% confidence all the time. No, that's not reality for us most of the time. Most of us, usually our faith is small, relatively small. Sometimes it's teeny weeny, barely there. But Jesus said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved. It will be moved. It takes just a little tiny bit. It makes all the difference. And so we see in this story, meek faith, little faith. This woman comes up and, and she has been sick for 12 years. And she's not so bold to be right out, you know, go right up to Jesus in front of everybody and say, would you pray for me to be healed of this sickness? Now, probably different reasons because it, it had social implications that it would have been embarrassing. Also, uh, she was unclean, uh, technically, so the other, anyone who was near her would have no, been unclean and, and stuff. So I think she's hiding that somewhat. But she has just, she's meek, she's timid, and she, just, she thinks, if I can just touch his garments, I believe he is who he is. And all I need is just a touch, just to touch his garment, and I will be healed. It's wonderful. Wonderful to see what happens through that. Faith involves two key components. Boil it down, it comes down to this. It, you must believe that God is who he is, that he is God. And there's a lot that comes with that, but at the, the bottom line, he's the supreme being, made all things, rules over all, so he is God, and that he rewards those who seek him. That's what faith is. It's believing that he exists and he rewards those. It, believe, it believes that without necessarily having all the data and evidence for it either. 
So faith is being sure of what we do not see. Okay? It has a ground. It has a basis. Uh, scripture gives us truth, presents Christ who was died for sins and rose again on the third day. That truth is for you. That's evidence of reasons for faith. So reasons are an important part of that. But it's not because you figured it all out that you believe. You have to believe for what you don't know. You, you basically trust that he is and he rewards those. And this woman trusted that Jesus is who he said he is and that he rewards those who trust in him. And what a reward she got. It's wonderful to watch what happens. She says, if I just touch his garment. And she's healed. It's this dramatic healing. She feels it. She feels herself immediately healed. The, the blood flow is dried up. She, she experiences immediate, powerful healing. And then Jesus notices it. The power has gone out of him. He knows what's gone on. And it's interesting. It's a comical scene because, I mean, people crowded around him everywhere. And, and Jesus is walking. All of a sudden, probably stops and said, who touched me? And his disciples are like, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's around you. He actually doesn't even address them in the, in the storyline. He just ignores them. These guys don't know what they're talking about. Where is the woman? Who, or who's the person? Who touched me? And the woman knows that she's found out. And she comes. And you might expect at that moment, Jesus to say, what are you doing? You don't do it that way. It's not your, you can't just kind of go for the healing on your terms, you know. Come and talk to me. I don't like it when people just touch me and they get healed. I like to have, I need to interview you a little bit and find out what you believe and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm going to take that healing back. We're going to start again. Now do it right. He doesn't do that. There's a wonderful blessing that he gives her. He calls her daughter. That's a term of endearment. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Her reward is dramatic and her blessing is sure from Jesus himself. And this is a picture to us of what the Lord's like. The Lord wants you to come to him in your desperation. And, and you may come in perfectly. You may have mixed motives. You may be confused. You may be full of doubt mixed with your faith. But he's not there to penalize you for not doing it just right. He wants you simply to come and put your faith in him. And he'll bring a reward. That's how faith works. Come and put your faith in Jesus, who is Lord over all disease, even the most desperate cases. What about Jairus? Jairus' situation is dramatic as well. This turn of events in the story changes things. I think he was full of faith at the beginning. Because I think his faith was so strong, he was willing just to give up everything. Because right? that's the implication. Right in front of it. He's right in front of the crowd. This is, you know, this is a major official in the town, respected religious leader. He just falls down at Jesus' feet. Please come and heal my daughter. Um, he's full of faith to do that. But then there's this crushing blow, this delay, this 12-minute delay, whatever it is. And then his friends or neighbors or family, whoever comes, they come and say, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And his faith at that point shrinks way down. Maybe barely there. And God in his mercy. It's just wonderful. Jesus overhears what they say. And he intervenes. He knows where Jairus is. He knows Jairus' 
temptation at that moment. And he could have just said, Jairus, buddy, you believe me before, there's no faith now. All right, who's next? But that would be unlike the Lord. He intervenes and he says to him, he brings encouragement. He says to Jairus, Jairus, look at me. Look right here. Eyes back on Jesus. Do not fear. Only believe. Attention on me. Do not fear. Only believe. Some of you right now need to hear Jesus saying the same thing because perhaps you're facing something and there's been an event or maybe the string of events. Maybe there's been a life situation. Maybe there's been something long-term. I don't know. You had faith, perhaps it was strong at one point, but there's been something that's shaken you. And you're thinking, it isn't, you know, God's not going to do this. He's not going to work. And you need to hear him saying to you, eyes here, look at me. Eyes on me. Lift up your eyes to me. Not your circumstances. Not your struggles. Do not fear. Only believe. He is who he is. And he will reward those who come to him in faith. That's a promise that doesn't change. He is Lord over disasters and demons and disease and death. He's Lord over all things. And he's demonstrated that to you, not only through this story, but through what he did later on. He went in full control of everything. He went purposefully to the cross. He allowed himself to be betrayed and turned over to the Roman authorities, knowing what would happen. He allowed the Roman authorities to take him to the cross, to, to scourge him, to put him on that cross, and to be crucified. He was in full control the whole time. He did it on purpose. He did it because he wanted to provide a way for you to be healed of the worst disease and the worst death. There is temporal disease and temporal death physical death, but there's something worse. It's spiritual disease and spiritual death. The reality is that we all have a a spiritual disease called sin. It's this insane disposition we have. It just does not make sense to look at what God, who He is, and what He calls us to, and go the other way. We see Him in creation. We see His blessings. We we see Him. He's on full display. There's no excuse for not believing in God. And yet we see Him and then he says things like, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, do not murder. Honor your father and mother. All these good things. And we run the other way. Sometimes our running the other way is blatant and obvious. And, and we know it. But there are some ways of running the other way that look good. Where you say, well, yeah, of course I'm doing that. You know, I'm honoring my parents. And you make an effort to honor your parents. But really in your heart, you don't want to. So you're covering up. And there are a lot of people who are religious. They give an appearance of being good and religious when in their hearts they're a mess. It comes out sooner or later. Often the religious versions of how it comes out is not in things like violence and drunkenness. It comes out in things like jealousy, gossip, hypocrisy, anger, bitterness, those sort of things. It comes out though eventually. We all have this crazy disease called sin that, that causes us to rebel against God who's goodness itself. And if we continue to live in this with the, the disease, there is an effect. It, it's eternal separation from God. He's a holy, good God. He will not have people who are committed to running away from Him in His presence. It doesn't make sense. 
he's holy, he must bring just consequences. And that's what eternal death is. Death is to be separated from God. If we are currently living in our sin, we are separate from him already. We're already spiritually dead. And that will continue forever. But Christ went to the cross to pay for those sins. To pay for your sins. So that you would not be guilty for them. The penalty would no longer be there for you. That you would be pardoned. And then the power of sin to define your life would be broken in a way that would change you forever. And he proved the effect of his death by rising again on the third day. And he proved the promise of faith in him by that new and eternal life that he rose to. He did all this so that you might not fear, but believe. He has made all his promises sure by this ultimate fulfillment of promises of his death and resurrection. And the truth of that is to fill our minds and our hearts And to give us power not to fear, but to believe. So Christian, do not fear. Only believe. Yet to be a Christian, come to him and learn to not fear, but believe. Do not fear. Only believe. And he takes Jairus and goes to the house And all these people who are there to mourn her death, making a commotion with how they would do that, weeping and wailing, are there. I just, I just can't imagine what Jairus was going through. He's saying, I believe, Jesus, I believe. I'm not going to fear, I'm not going to believe. And then hearing all the people wailing and all that, I mean, just the, what was he going through? The mix of emotions, the struggle. Jesus says, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. Speaking of a temporary sleep of death that will result in life. And they laugh. And he shoes them all out. And says, Peter, James, and Johnny, come on, you guys. And Jairus and the mom, come with me. They walk into that room. There is the lifeless body of their dear little girl. And Jesus says to her, Talitha kumi. Little girl, rise. And she gets up. And she's alive. And she walks around and and he says, feed her. Give her something to eat. She's fully healed. She's vibrant once again. And and it says that they were immediately overcome with amazement. This happens. She's, I mean, just can you imagine? Can you imagine being Jairus or the mom and watching this happen? Your daughter who's dead and you've been crushed. And now Jesus is here. He's told you, do not fear, only believe. And he touches her and, and, and is there to heal her. She gets up on her feet. She's alive. I just picture, it says they're immediately overcome uh, with amazement. I don't know what that looked like, but I think for me, I would just fall down on my knees and weep with joy and that gratitude that Jesus had done that. They were overcome with amazement. He intervenes and overcomes death in the household of Jairus and declares to us today and to them that day who he is. He's Lord over death. All death. Through his miracles, through his death and resurrection, he's Lord over death. He's Lord over sin. He's Lord for you. Put your faith in Jesus freshly today. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer, This is a call for all of us to put our faith in Him. If the band could come up as we close.
What are you being called to through this story? Through this account in Mark? What is God doing in your heart? Where are you? There's all sorts of calls that God might have. He calls us to Himself through this story. Perhaps it's just to be encouraged. Maybe you are in the place of desperation and He's saying, do not fear, only believe. He wants to encourage you. He wants to refresh you. Perhaps He's equipping you to bring that message to someone else you know. Guys, there's so many people out there that are desperate. Some of them know it. Some of them don't yet know it. And maybe He's given you this story to call you to once again be refreshed in it and tell it to others. Tell others that Jesus is Lord over disasters and demons, disease and death. He will never disappoint. He is amazing. And it makes every bit of sense to put our faith in Him like Jairus and this woman. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for who You are. We thank You for Your truth. We thank You for Your power and Lordship. We ask You, Lord, to refresh us in who You are, to encourage and strengthen us, to give us hope. I pray You'd speak to each person here, and I pray You would equip us with this wonderful message to tell others today and this week. We thank You, Lord, for who You are. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand close and worship.